you very much for that introduction. <coughs> thank you everybody for being here. <coughs> and we thank the Guru for arranging this tremendous convention, Halacha Summit. Uh, Rabbi Fran just spoke for about an hour about Kiddush Hashem the obligation to live with Kiddush Hashem. And I guess I could say that this is a great start. <laughs> the, it's tremendous inspiration to see so many Bnei Terah coming together to learn, to hear halacha, to understand halacha, to understand what halacha is. What does it mean to do business like a Jew does business? The same way Jews do everything differently. We eat differently. We keep different yam taivim. A Jew does business differently as well. And without learning, there's no way to know. The topic today, a deal is a deal. When we talk about backing out of a deal or uh, you know, reneging on a deal, we maybe think of people sitting on a bargaining table negotiating, and then the negotiations go south, and you back out. Obviously, you can always do that. That's the point of negotiations. And once everything has been signed, Contracts have been written, everything is clear, everything is stated, it's finished. Typically, you can't back out, that's pretty straightforward as well. However, if everybody would write proper contracts and execute them correctly, we would indeed avoid a lot of DNA terror and lawsuits. That would, that would help a lot. And the problem is that people either don't write contracts at all, or they don't execute them correctly, or they don't write them correctly or the transactions are simply just not kind of transactions that you make contracts for. And therefore, this question becomes very applicable. So as uh, Rav Yaakov just said, backing out of a deal is often a, a, something which is very wrapped up in Chil Hashem. But if you're on the other end, which is someone's backing out on you, so now you want to know, OK, so what recourse do I have? Can I bring him to Bezdin? What are my rights? What can, I, what can he be forced to do? What can he be told to do, expected to do? Now, the truth is, there are many details and facets to this discussion, and the, 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 these shilas span across many different sugyas in Chayshu Mishpah, many different areas of halacha. But what I think I can try to accomplish today is we're going to try to establish that there are three questions that you need to ask yourself. Anytime you find yourself in this situation, whether someone's backing out or you, or you want to know, are you permitted to back out? There are three questions that you have to address. And these questions are universal. No matter what kind of deal we're talking about, these questions are applicable. The answer isn't always the same. But the questions are questions that you have to ask yourself. And if we have a clarity about these questions, we'll have a much better understanding of what our rights are, what recourse we have, and what, what does the halacha expect of us. But <clears throat> to just what the questions are, are number one, has minimally a verbal commitment been made? That's the first question always. Is there any verbal commitment, right? We'll see, is that enforceable? What rights does that give? But that's question number one. Was there at least a verbal commitment? Question number two, has the deal progressed to a point of Kenyan, like a contract or other Kenyanim that we're going to discuss? Has any form of a binding Kenyan been made that would then bring the question up to the next level? And the last question that you have to ask yourself is what are the ramifications of backing out of the deal? What, are the, what will happen when you renege? How much damage will be caused? 
what loss will either side incur as a result of dissolving this deal? And that will both determine, A, whether it's permitted from a halacha standpoint to back out, and two, it'll also determine liability. At times, a person can be liable for the damages that he causes through backing out. But before we ask ourselves these three questions, what we really need to do is first just understand what kind of deal are we working with? Because there are a lot of different kind of deals, and that's just a very generic term. So I'm going to break it down into three different categories of deals, which cover a lot of the, both the business world and halacha as well. Uh, and they, each one has their own unique way that each one of these questions are approached. So the first of those categories would be employment contracts or ag agreements, so any kind of Employment between two people, one is going to work or do work for another, uh, is one kind of deal. Another kind of deal is sales, right? When any kind of transaction is taking place where property, real estate or not real estate, is going over from one person's possession to another person's possession, that's another kind of deal. And the last kind of deal that we're going to address are partnerships, because it's a different kind of deal, where the partners are trying to work together in order to either buy, sell, uh, invest, etc., but that itself between the partners is also a kind of deal and also is subject to these halachis of backing out, reneging, what is the recourse to try to protect a person against that and, uh, or, or, and, and what is permitted. Now all these apply in multi-million dollar deals or $25 deals that a person does day to day. For example, let's start with employment uh, contracts, right, or agreements. For example, uh, if you take a taxi, so you are entering into an employment agreement with the taxi driver. Not a very long one, not a very expensive one, but you are hiring him. He's going to drive you somewhere, he's your employee for, that, uh, for the duration of that, that deal. And if you, uh, uh, if you hire a taxi, meaning to say if you reserve a taxi and the guy starts driving to your location and then you want to cancel, you're backing out on a deal. And it's subject to the halachis of backing out to a, on, of a deal. Are you allowed to? Are you not allowed to? Now, uh, typically, there won't be much of a difference in halacha, as we'll see in that case. But this plays out much more, uh, in a much more relevant way when a person makes an appointment by a doctor or by a dentist. So even though you're the patient, you're actually the employer. Right? You're paying the doctor, so you're employing the doctor. And if you make an appointment, so you have set up, uh, you have set up a, a business uh, agreement with him that he's going to treat you at this time, and you're paying him for his time. And if then you cancel, and it's uh, beyond the accepted time of cancellation, it's too close to the appointment, so you're causing damage to the doctor, he's losing revenue for the time that he set aside for you, so you've just backed out an employment agreement, and you can be held halakhically liable whether or not the doctor will choose to pursue you on it. Uh, from a halakhic standpoint, it doesn't make a difference. You may be halakhically liable. So that's a very small deal, a very small engagement. And it is no different, though, from a multi-million dollar contract where someone's hiring someone to uh, build a, a commercial building and he wants to back out. The halakha can be, will, will, the questions will be the same and the answers will be similar. Um, more typical is when a person is working for someone else and they decided they want to quit. 
but they're quitting at a very, very inopportune time. You're an accountant and you're quitting in the height of tax season, right? That's a very opportune time and you're going to cause a lot of damage and heartache to your employer at that time. Are you allowed to do it? So all these things are examples of reneging on an employment agreement and will be subject to these questions. The second category is sales. Now, let me just give you a common application in our daily lives of backing out of a sale deal, a sale agreement. Uh, I imagine at this point, uh, everybody's children has already, have already or have been bugging them to buy them costumes, right? So if you don't live in a community where you can just pop into a store and buy a Purim costume, so you have to order it. So after much thought, right, and, and, and heartache, the, your kid finally decides exactly what he wants to be on Purim. You go onto the Jewish website, you order the, you order the costume, and five minutes later, a total mechatitis. He doesn't understand how he even wanted, ever wanted such a thing. And he says you have to cancel the order. The problem is this is not Amazon. This is a Jewish website. And there is no option to cancel. So you have to wait until they ship it. And you get it. And then you have to ship it back. And you lose money on shipping. And you can't call them. There's nobody picking up. So what do you do? So you say, OK, I have an easy option. I'll, uh, I'll just go to call my credit card. And I'll contest the charge. Once the charge is contested, they're not going to ship it, then, you know, Shalom al-Yisrael, and eventually I'll take care of it with them. And that's this way I can solve the problem, and we can order a different costume. Now, what you're doing is, is you made a uh, sale. You, you paid. You paid with a credit card. Uh, there was most, right? You, you, you paid with money, and now you're backing out. That's backing out on a sale, very much subject to this discussion of backing out on a deal. Now, in real estate... Uh, uh, transactions, this comes up all the time, right? People are uh, booking apartments, they're booking apartments in Florida for Pesach, or they're booking apartments for a whole year, and they didn't quite make an uh, agreement yet, they just talked to the landlord, and he said, he'll take it, and I'll take it, and you came up with a price, and everybody agreed, and all was great, and then you found out that he's charging 10% more than everybody else is charging, so now you want to back out, but you kind of already agreed, you didn't sign the contract yet, because, you know, it's your friends, but... Everything was agreed and signed, and so to speak, in, in your minds, can you back out at that point? And in the current sales market, this is a very familiar scenario. This, con this is happening a lot, getting these shilas all the time, where someone uh, puts up their house for sale. And within 24 hours, they get their asking price. Right? Someone calls them up and says, I'll give you your asking price. And not being that much the wiser, they say, fine, they agree, we accept. We accept your offer. Maybe they even signed the contract. We'll talk about that. But even if they just say, okay, we accept your offer, we'll move forward with it. And then a day and a half later, someone calls and says, I'll give you $20,000 more than your asking price. And then a week later, someone says, I'll give you $50,000 more than your asking price. This is Maisim Chalyoim, especially when the market is crazy. Can he back out now? Uh, he, he said, but uh, now it's $50,000 at stake for what he said, right? So Yerushalayim gets, gets sorely challenged at that point. So there is a, a very significant question in terms of sales, whether a person can back out or not, or is there any recourse to prevent the person from backing out in that case. Third category is in partnerships, which, like I said, has its own area of halacha. And in partnerships, it, it's, it's, it's doubly complicated. Uh, as I've been asked in the past, because it's very difficult, actually, to really nail down a partner 
to obligate him to follow through. Uh, for example, if you and someone else want to start a business together, you maybe even form an LLC. And one of them is the investing partner, and one of them is the operating partner. And the investing partner promises to invest X amount of money, and uh, they'll get, he'll get this percent, and, and the operating guy will get this percent, and it's all agreed on. And they go through negotiations, and they're bought, about to buy a commercial property, and they've paid money to lawyers, to appraisers. A lot of money's been invested already. And then at the 11th hour on the table, the investing partner says, you know what, I changed my mind, I want a bigger percentage. And now what are you supposed to do, right? You can't let the whole thing fall through, you're gonna lose way more money that way. So he has you, sorry for the pun, he has you over the table. So, now, is he allowed to do that? I mean, he's also reneging on a deal, but that's a partnership. It's different, it works differently. Questions are the same, the answers are gonna be different. So, in all these cases, first we have to identify the nature of the deal. Is it an employment, is it sales, or is it a partnership? And now we can start asking ourselves the questions. And let's, let's start with these questions. So the first question is, has minimally a verbal commitment been made? Now, actually this question is the only question where it doesn't make a difference what kind of contract it is, what kind of engagement it is, whether it's sales, partnership, doesn't make a difference. Here it doesn't make a difference. There, here the question is always the same question. Has a verbal commitment been made? And what is not actually understood that well uh, and I feel like it's almost a, a topic that should be taught in yeshivas and in girls' schools, is that a Jew is obligated to keep his word. It seems to be a surprising concept. Uh, but I, I, I'll say what's surprising about it is that we don't recognize the extent of it. That's what's surprising. There is a Gemara about Metziah. The Gemara learns it out of a Pasuk. Uh, when you say yes, you have to keep to it. And when you say no, you have to keep to it. Uh, this is referred to as Mechusar if you back out from your word, it's uh, the, the, the term in Chayshemishba, you're not trustworthy. And it's an Avera. Now, it's unique in terms of that it's not like typical Chayshemishba where there's a plaintiff and a defendant and there's a tayin and there's a nitin and someone can bring you to Bezdin and say, hey, you have to keep your word. It doesn't work that way. This is between you and Hashem. It's an it's a Isser. There's an Isser of Hinshel Chatzedek. The person you're backing out on has no recourse. Bezdin can help you. But the person who backed out, if he's over on Hinshel Chatzedek, if he promised and he made a commitment, and we'll talk in a minute what constitutes a commitment, but if he made a true commitment and it's subject to this halach of Hinshel Chatzedek, and he backs out, he's a Russia. And the Sma says that the Rav needs to get up, uh, I don't know, by Kabbalah Shabbos when everybody's in shul and make a clap on the beam and say, this week's List of Rishayim, Pliny backed out from a deal. He's a Russian. Uh, right? Not so much in practice these days, but it's, it's serious enough, meaning to say Bezdin doesn't have any recourse, but the rabbi is required to chew him out and to give him Teichacha that he's doing a Maisa, Resha, he's doing something which is a very serious Isra. So this halacha. Uh, like I said, is not so well understood the extent of it because it applies both to when you agree to a sale, that's the case of the Gemara actually, is when you agree to a sale, then in Shulchan Aruch it's discussed extensively in terms of employment, when you promise someone employment or you promise to do a job, even volunteering, where you're not getting any money, but you promise to do it, and then you want to back out, it doesn't work out for you anymore. It's a problem of Hinshel Chatzedek, and that's what I mean, where people don't realize how far it goes. Uh, Rabbi Yosef Kushner 
the friend of mine who was giving the, one of the concurring sessions, uh, he, was, he was telling me, it's a good, a good point, he says, you know, one, one thing it doesn't apply to is when you, what you're asking someone to do is not something financial. Uh, so, uh, for example, if you tell your son, make your bed, and he says, sure, ta, I'll make my bed, and then he doesn't, right? So he's not over in Hinshel Chatzedek. Right, he's over on Kibbutz you know, one of the Sarasadibras. But Hinshel Chatzedek, that is not over on. It's not a financial thing. So it has to be something that's essentially financial, something that people pay money for. Uh, people would hire someone to do. So even if you then choose to do it for free, you are obligated to keep your word. Now, that being said, the first step that Hinshel Chatzedek requires is that it was a serious commitment. So a lot of times you may have met someone by a chasana and you discuss that you need a guy to do a job and he says, oh, maybe I can do it for you. And he said, yeah, you know what, give me a call. I think I could give it to you. So it, this uh, discussion doesn't necessarily mean a commitment. It needs to be serious. It needs to be in the context of a serious commitment. And if there, it's clear that you didn't mean it at the time, you still wanted to think about it, you wanted to talk about it, you had things to discuss still. So then, even though you may have promised it, it you didn't really mean it, and you won't have the halakha of Hinshel Chatzedek. Now, though that's true, I think that the first thing we should walk away from this conversation, at least, is that we shouldn't promise unless we're sure we can keep our promise. Because we don't want to be a Russia. We don't have to be. So when someone does ask us to do something, or someone does approach us with a sale, or we're in the middle of a negotiation, do not make that promise unless we're prepared to keep that promise. But nonetheless, if it wasn't serious, so then halacha does not require you, because it wasn't, there was no gemiras das. Nobody expected it to be followed through. But the more relevant uh, application, the exception rather, that Shulchan Aruch does say, which even though it's a machlaikis, this is the way we paskin or makel on this, it's called treitari. Treitari means literally two prices. So uh, a common application would be, let's say you got in, you promised to do a job for someone, and let's say it was right before COVID, and you promised to do the job, and you made up a certain price for the job, and then COVID hit. And the cost of doing that job skyrocketed, as many things happened during COVID. So yeah, you promised to do the job, and you even promised to the details, and you, 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 you said exactly how much you'll do and what the prices will be, but then everything changed. That's tretari. Tretari means that there's been a significant fluctuation in price from when you made the commitment to when it comes to execute the commitment, and there we hold you could back out. Now, this doesn't only uh, apply to sales, it applies to jobs as well, which means that if you committed to do a job and then uh, the job market changed and people are just paying a lot more money for this kind of job, you can also back out and quit and take the other job because, again, that's tretari. The thing, it also, it's not necessarily price, but benefits, hours, all those things. If something changed and you were given a job that didn't exist previously, that will be tretari. And again, if the only thing that's obligating you to keep your word is the fact that you gave your word, so that would allow you, enable you, halakhically, to back out. And this applies to a partnership as well. If someone promises to go into a partnership, commits to be in a partnership, commits to the, to the details of the partnership, the, 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 all the terms, his word is a word, and he has to keep it. He can't back out unless something significant changed. But 
the tricky thing about this is the case I mentioned earlier, where this fellow put up his house, he had an asking price, and someone came to him with his asking price, and he said, fine, I'll take it, I'll give it to you. And then someone else came and said, I'll offer you 20,000 more. And another guy said, 50,000 more. So the price didn't fluctuate. You just didn't do your homework. Nothing changed. You just didn't realize you were just uninformed. You were not aware that you can get a lot more money for your house. So that's not a fluctuation in price. That's your incumbent upon you to do that research before you make an offer, before you take an offer on your house to make sure that you're getting a fair deal. And if you just chose to go ahead with it, nonetheless, well, then your word should still be a word and should obligate you. That, if anything, that would more be a question, it wouldn't be Tretari, but it maybe would be a question of Mecca So maybe when you said yes, being that you weren't aware that you were vastly underpricing your house, so maybe in terms of giving your word, it was like a mekachtois, you gave your word mistakenly. So there is a machlek is a paiskim, contemporary paiskim about this, and depending which rub you ask, you may get a very different answer about what you're obligated to do at this point. But I do believe that the majority of contemporary paiskim are mekel, and they consider this tari as well. So even if the reason why there's a fluctuation of price is not because anything changed, but simply because you were not aware of the difference in price that existed, that also would enable you to back out and to change what you committed to because of that lack of knowledge. And another uh, simple application of when you're certainly allowed to back out is when the industry allows you to back out, right? So, like I said, if you make an appointment by a doctor or a dentist, so with as long as it's a 24-hour notice, they have no problem. They allow you to back out. A taxi service up to a certain point, it's a given that you can back out, you can cancel. So every industry has its standard, and as long as you're within what is normal for that industry, that's fine as well. You can back out. But I've given this share before, and uh, within the audience, I started hearing that every industry, or even the same industry, people have different idea of what is industry standard. So you can't just apply it too flippantly. What you think industry standard isn't necessarily what is industry standard or the understanding of the other side. But again, this question, although it is a universal question and it can be applied to any kind of transaction, whether a sale, employment, or a partnership, however, Again, this is between the person backing out and a Kaddish Baruch Hu, and maybe his rabbi, but there is no recourse for the other person involved to do anything about it. You can't force him. It's a mitzvah that's incumbent upon him. Bezdin can't really do anything. They can't get involved. So this is the first step, and it's important for every person to know their own obligations, but in terms of recourse, stopping the other person, there is very little you could do if it's just diburim, if it's just a commitment, a verbal commitment. So now let's get to the second question. And the second question is, has a Kenyan taken place? Okay? So in, when we discuss Kenyanim, I would, I'm going to stick to, I think, what are the three primary forms of Kenyanim that you'll find in, in typical business today. Uh, one, obviously, is contracts, right? So contracts is going to be the best form of Kenyan and uh, generally the most powerful form of Kenyan. The second form of Kenyan is money. Has a down payment been made? Has money changed hands? Has payment ha happened? Is money in escrow, etc.? All those fall under the second kind of Kenyan, which is Kenyan Mois. And lastly is a very interesting halachic kind of Kenyan, which you may be familiar with, which is called Situmsa. Situmsa is described in a Gemara in Bab Metziah, 
And it means an agreed-upon Kenyan, which means it's not a Kenyan that the Torah ever uh, enacted, and neither is it a Kenyan that Chazal were metakein, but it's a Kenyan that's agreed upon among merchants. They have, in their industry, this is accepted that the sale is final, the deal is final, and cannot be backed out upon anymore. Uh, that is referred to as a Situmsa, and there are many such examples, as we'll see. Now, I will say, before we start, that writing a contract is the absolute best thing any person can ever do. And people don't realize how important it is to write a contract, at least if, if, the, if it's something that you can write a contract about, write a contract. And you know, it'll save you money, it'll protect you, and actually sometimes even more importantly, it's gonna save relationships, friendships, family. People, and you hear this again and again in Beisden, they say, why did we, th we didn't think you have to write a contract, I mean, we're all from Jews, and everybody is well-meaning, and everybody is honest, but nobody understood each other. <laughs> that was just the reality. One person thought this, and the other person thought that, and when it comes to a Dintaira, they all yell at each other, how could you have possibly have thought that? And the other person is just as adamant, how could you have thought I meant that? And it was just because they didn't write a contract, not because they had to force anybody, but just so that they both understand what the other person is talking about when it's on paper, it's very, very clear. And that being said, it means that you don't even have to sign the contract. You don't have to get yourself lawyers necessarily so that it's enforceable in a court of law, but at least have it all written out in an email without, so that everybody read it and everybody knows exactly what the other person is thinking. Of course, if you sign it, it's so much better because then you're actually bound to what was written there and you can't say, well, yeah, I saw it and I changed my mind. So the very, very best thing you can do for yourself, for your relationships, for your peace of mind and protection is to, uh, is to write a contract. Now, that being said, so let's talk about something that has, has been going on a lot uh, due to the changes brought about COVID. There, there were many developers, right, who were developing properties, and as is typical with developers, they sell the houses, right, before they've done anything, they haven't even built the houses. They sell the houses and you sign on the house, and you, the prices are all established and great. So a lot of these people did these deals before COVID. And then with COVID, the price of lumber, the price of raw material, the price of labor went through the roof. And so much so that if they finish the contract as it was written, they're going to lose so much money, they're going to maybe even go bankrupt. So here, you know, if it would have just been Dvarim, if it would have just been words, so then this would be most certainly a situation where they'd be entitled to back out. The problem is, it wasn't Dvarim. They had a contract, they signed a contract, and that obligates them, and therefore, if it's a full-blown Kenyan, they would not be entitled to back out at that point. But, it's not that simple. Why? And here is where you see that it's not just important to write a contract, but it's important to write a contract correctly. And it needs to be looked over by a Rav, and often a lawyer as well. And the reason is because Typically, a contract like that is not really enforceable because it's a Ba'ilam. A developer is selling a house that does not exist yet. So it's a Davosh usually for a number of reasons. It's a Davosh because it's miss missing many malachis before it's built. There's many things that need to be done. A lot of times it's a Davosh because he doesn't even have the permitting he needs to be able to build. So it's not even biyada. It's not even within his power to build the house yet. And furthermore, a lot of times it's a Davosh because it's not even established yet that it belongs to him. 
He could be selling what he's planning on developing before it is even 100% legally his. So he's selling something that's not even his. When he signed on the contract, you were signing with the wrong person. So the contract may exist, but it may not be enforceable at all because it's Davish Lebelayla. And here, you think, so if that's the case, why are so many of these developers signing these contracts. So there is a way you can make such a contract that it should be enforceable, but it, it'll be very dependent on the language. And the typical language used in these contracts, which is the secular language, is not halakhically enforceable. And then a person can find a way to back out secularly, he will be able to back out halakhically as well, because it's a double shalabalayla. So we'll talk more about that in a moment. But it's not just limited to big developers with uh, you know, developing tons of houses. Every time you buy a house, what do you do first? You sign a contract. What is the contract? The contract is a commitment to execute, to buy, the seller has to sell, you have to buy. Is that contract something which is enforceable according to halacha? Simply, no, it's not. Why not? Because there's no such thing in halacha as making a Kenyan to do something. It's called a Kenyan etain, Kenyan dvarim, you may be familiar, beginning of Abbasra. There's no such thing, you can't make a Kenyan to do something. You can make a Kenyan to sell something. You can make a Kenyan to sell your time. That's if you're an employee, right? You can sell your time, you can sell yourself, you can sell a malacha. But you can't make a Kenyan to do something. That's not enforceable. There's no such Kenyan, it's a Kenyan dvar. So essentially, again, it'll depend on the wording, but a classic contract that you make every time you want to make a sale won't necessarily be enforceable according to halacha. Now, as an aside, I'm not really going to get into this, but you may ask, okay, what about Dina de Machus Adina, right? It's enforceable in a court of law. So, Dina de Machus Adina is a complex topic, and I will just say this, that even if you take the most extreme uh, view in ex- uh, Dina de Machus Adina, which is you hold that Dina de Machus Adina overrides Chesha Mishpat, and you follow the secular law of the land, regardless of what it says in Shulchan Aruch, even if you take that most extreme view, everybody agrees that's only for something that's an established din, which means it's an uncontested established din. It's a law in the law books. But if you're familiar, and I wasn't, but someone, uh, a, a, a friend of mine printed out a number of, law, of um, such similar court, court cases that took place actually here in uh, Illinois, uh, it's almost always the discretion of the judge when it comes to these kind of contracts, execution contracts. There's no given in the law even when there are, even when there are pre, uh, pre-existing cases that they can base it off, it's up to the judge. The judge makes the call. And that's very clear in halacha. There's no didam al-chusadin in that case. When it's up to the judge, every time in secular law, then it's not, there's no didam al-chusadin at all. And then just, just as equally, it's going to be up to a basin. So even a very, very common contract that everybody writes is perhaps, arguably, unenforceable. Now, it could be very easily enforceable. And it's really a very small change in language that'll make it enforceable, both of these contracts. And what you have to write is instead of, I will do this, I will sell, I will buy, I will build, what you write is, I'm chayv myself to build. I obligate myself. I'm, I accept obligation upon myself to build. It's a fine difference. It's a, it's a hairline difference in language. In Lush and Kaidish, it makes it's a more significant difference in language than it is in English. But the difference is, is one, a person is being makabal, has chayvus, shibun on himself, and one, he's saying, I'm going to do something. If you say you're going to do something, you make a kenyan, it's null and void. If your makabal has chayvus upon yourself, 
That you could do. That's creating something right now. That's selling, I'm selling you a shibud, like a shibud karkayis, a shibud aguf. That can be done right away. So the language is of utmost important, importance for the contract to be enforceable. And like I said, that's why, yes, writing a contract is extremely important, but getting it right is also very important. Otherwise, a person will be in for a rude uh, and, and uh, unpleasant the, the surprise when they get to Bezin and Bezin says, sorry, this isn't worth anything. <clears throat> now, this is also relevant for an additional reason. We've been talking about sales. But these really make a very big difference when it comes to partnerships. Because in essence, a partnership is all about doing something in the future, right? That is what a partnership is. We are partners, and we even form an LLC, and we even put the money into the LLC. But it's all about something that we will do in the future. We will buy, we will work, we will invest. And if you want to protect yourself in a partnership, and you want that that shouldn't happen to you, that at the 11th hour your partner says, you know what, I'm getting cold feet, I need a bigger percentage, I don't feel safe, I don't like the terms. So there's, you can't write a contract or even a partnership agreement that says, okay, you will do this and you will do that, because it will not be enforced. And it won't be enforced in a secular law either. either. Not a court will enforce it, nor will a basin enforce it, because you can't make a kinyan on a thing like that. So, here is an utmost importance that those contracts need to be phrased properly, and very often even the phrasing is not enough. You have to include some kind of uh, knas, right? Some kind of a penalty if a partner backs out in order to truly enforce it. So partnerships are often from the hardest things to really protect yourself and to enforce and make sure that the other side won't have the ability to back out or at least you should have some kind of a recourse. So very important to pay attention to, to, to A, make a contract and how the contract is written. So that's a lot about contracts. Now let's move on and let's talk about sales or payments or when money has been given, right? The kinyan moyes that we were talking about. Now the case I mentioned earlier, right? When the fellow made uh, this sale, he, he, well, he ordered the Purim costume, right? Small little deal, not a lot of money, but he ordered the Purim costume, he wants to back out and he wants to cancel the deal. So what is this? What's the status of this situation halachically? So the status is, is that he paid Moyes, right? Let's start with that. At least that much he did. He paid Moyes. And paying Moyes, as you may be aware, Sugim Bab Metziah, Moyes ain't in kindness, the Gemara says, right? Moyes, even though the Torah, we pass in the Torah holds that if you pay money, even for metatalim, even for something that's not real estate, it becomes yours. The Chachamim removed the power of that Kenyan and they said, Moyes ain't in kindness. And only Meshicha, only a physical Kenyan works. You have to pick it up, Agba, Meshicha, others, kind of Kenyan, but Moyes, that doesn't work. However, the Chachamim didn't leave it just like that. And they said that if you do back out after you've given money, or either side, or taken money, there is something called a Mishapara. Mishapara is short for a quite nasty curse that Chazal in the Mishnah uh, give to anybody who backs out. Mishapara, who punish them should punish you. So it's a very, very, a very, very nasty curse, which nobody 
uh, in their right mind, would want to be su- subject themselves to that curse of Chazal. And that very specific, Chazal made this curse because, th- being that they were the ones that undid Kenyan Mayas, and they said they allowed you to back out from Kenyan Mayas for the reasons which are explained over there in the Gemara. But that protection they inserted, which is Mishapara. A person backs out, he gets a Mishapara, a very, very ser- a serious and scary curse. But a person could back out. You can't stop them. Again, that's between them and Hashem. Should they not care? Uh, should they be not religious? You know, they're not going to care. So there is no recourse that a person can do to stop them other than tell them, listen, you know, this is a very bad idea. But other than that, you can't actually enforce it. Now, what's interesting, though, about this, so talking about that case where the guy with the Purim costume, so if he goes and he calls his credit card company and he contests the charge, he will get a Mishapara. Uh, if he backs out. Unless, again, you know, if he works it out with the seller and they're fine, fine, you know, no problem. Then you worked it out. But if they're not okay with it and there's no returns on seasonal items, then that person, by doing so, will have over $25, got, him, got himself a Mishapara. And this refers, this, this applies to any time money changes hands. Uh, and if for whatever reason the Kenyan is not final, that will create the situation of Mishapara. Now, what, what's interesting about Maos and it's a fascinating thing. It actually has a lot of relevance uh, in our in Yerdea and in Urchaim. Is it's not clear exactly what the status of the merchandise is after money has changed hands. I'll tell you a case that we had in uh, in Silver Spring last. Um, it was it was last year. So there was a uh, a caterer. And let's say we'll call him Sam. Okay, this caterer, Jewish caterer, is under the vat. And right before Pesach, he made a big order of echta chametz, real chametz. Uh, he needed it right after Pesach. So he ordered it from his supplier, the wholesaler. And he told the wholesaler, it was a woman, uh, her name is Debbie. He said, Debbie, just you know, keep it by you. So Debbie kept it by her. She, she even took pictures of it. And there was a big sticker on his pallet of merchandise, the chametz. It said, Sam's. And uh, you know, that's where they left it. So he went and he sold his chametz because he sells his chametz. So he sold all his chametz. Uh, then after Pesach, and he approached the vat, he realized that, hey, uh, the wholesaler is Jewish, not religious. Now what? Can I get this? Uh, can I accept this shipment? Right? I paid Mois, right? He paid for it, but he didn't accept delivery on it, so he didn't make any physical Kenyan. So he had a situation of Mois, but he sold his chametz, but who said it was his? And if it was hers, it's chametz Arbal of Pesach. The assumption was she didn't sell her chametz. And it's chametz of Pesach, so he can't take it, and he can't really get money back for it either. <laughs> it's not even clear. And it's, it gets complicated. It's Nisr Fukhitech of Aliyah. It's a great topic for a shir. But it just underscored this complex uh, status that the merchandise has at this point. When you gave Moyes, it's kind of in limbo. It's partially yours and partially not. And it's not clear how we're going to treat it regarding Arachayim as well. This is relevant, by the way, uh, the other way around as well. When a person buys an estrig, and he needs to pay money, but he hasn't paid money yet. And a lot of times, like, uh, I know my shul, we order a sregen for the kahila, and uh, we pay the store after sukkis, because uh, it, people are constantly changing the order, so it's very hard to get the exact amount before sukkis, and they're totally fine with that. They want to, they, you know, they're also very crazy right before sukkis, they're fine with settling the account after sukkis. But then it turns out, we haven't paid moyes at all, we've only done mashicha, which also makes complications halachically, what's the status of such a Kenyan. So it's an interesting topic. But bottom line is, if money has changed hands, so then minimally a person will be liable for a Mishapar. 
What gets interesting here, though, is that there's another aspect to this, and that's the third Kenyan, Sutumsa. Sutumsa means, again, an agreed-upon agreed Kenyan. The classic case, actually, which the Gemara talks about is very similar to this story with the caterer. The, the, in those days, you bought wine, so the, the wine merchant would just mark it off, that it's yours. And that was the Sutumsa, then it was yours. He couldn't back out, he couldn't sell it to anybody else anymore. It's like the Asterix Seicher who writes your initials on the box. Now it's yours, even though you haven't picked it up yet, right? So that, is, in the, that was the Sutumsa for that. Uh, the common example given nowadays is a handshake. If you've ever been around when a, when a Rav sells chametz on Pesach, one of the many kinyanim that you do with the guy is you make a handshake. Handshake is kinyan sutumsa. In certain industries, a handshake is a given that that seals the deal. Diamond industry, other industries. So that's an example of sutumsa. What's well, a big question in the Paiskim is that in today's day and age, clicking and paying with a credit card is also a sutumsa because that's just the way business is done nowadays. That finalizes a sale in every area of commerce. If you click and you, and, 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 and you complete the sale with your credit card information, the sale is final. So therefore, that should be considered a satumsa. And if that's the case, so then in all these cases, not only if you back out or you get a mishapara, you're also a ganav, because <laughs> the sale was final, because there's a satumsa. Now, what's complicated about this is that essentially, What's going on here is that you gave money. Chazal said, Mayas ain't in kindness, and they had a reason for that. And then all we did is we turned around and we gave the same thing. You gave money, credit card, it was money. And we just called it something else, and now we say, okay, now it is kind of. So that's a machlekes achreinim, does that actually work or not? So it's not simple. But regardless, it is a definitely a very serious question. So when a person is backing out on a deal, Again, you have to see, is there a contract? Has a contract been written? Was a contract written correctly? Does it obligate him? That needs, to be the, that needs to be figured out. That needs to be decided. Is there money? Has money changed hand? Has a down payment been made? A down payment being made is the same, has the same binding power as paying in full. Paying part has the same binding power. That will minimally create a mishapara. It can possibly even finalize the deal if it has a status of a situmsa, like if it's an electronic deal, if it's a credit card. And those are the three kinyanim that you can apply to any one of the situations which we talked about. Now, there's one last fascinating point that I want to leave you with on this, is that there's a whole other application of mishapara, which is a machlaikis rishonim, it's a question how to understand the Gemara. But in Shulchan Aruch, it's a machlaikis brought down a pischi as well that if you make a sale which should have gone through but didn't go through due to a technical error, for example, like right? so you have this gentleman who sold the house, but it was a and that invalidated the sale, so it didn't go through, many pais can hold, you still can't back out because you'll get a mishapara. When Chazal created this concept of mishapara, they didn't limit it to giving money. They also extended it to doing kinyanim, which for all intents and purposes demonstrated a full gemir das that everybody was on the same page and we finalized and we negotiated and we went through with it and then we just made a mistake in executing it. There also would be a mishapara if you back out of that case. So going back to those incorrectly written contracts, even though it may be true that they are not enforceable, but there is very likely a very serious issue nonetheless of a Mishapara. So again, then, when asking the second question, 
you do have to know what kind of transaction is going on because that'll determine what kind of Kenyan works and what kind of Kenyan was done. Was a contract done? Was Mayas done? Is there a Shatumsa? And then you do also need to, to consider that even if the Kenyanim have issues, they may have been sufficient to create at least a Mishapara, which in turn will at least do that, put that much pressure on the other side not to renege. Now, as well, that in different areas of, of, of um, transactions, for example, when it comes to Skiras Payalim, when you're hiring someone, there's other Kinyanim, there's more, not just these three. There's something called Haskalas Malacha. In a partnership, there's a different kind of Kinyan as well. The Rambam holds, you don't even need a Kinyan. So uh, the question has to be asked, and you can always check through these three Kinyanim contract, Kinyan, Sutumsa, but be aware that in different areas of halacha there are actually more kinyanim that are relevant and that also would have to be uh, examined and determined by a based. Let me go to the last point which we're going to talk about and we'll, leave, uh, we'll, we'll finish with that which is what are the damages that are being incurred from backing out. Now this you find the most in Helchis Chiris Pailam which is a little interesting why it's like that and it's becomes always questionable exactly how we apply it from Skiras Pailam, from employment contracts to other contracts. But here's what it is, here's what it says, at least by employment contracts. So by employment contracts, we have a halacha that if you back out, and it's a dabra of it, which means if you're backing out, if you're canceling your agreement to work or your person you're hiring causes real damage to the person, that's called a dabra of it. And that could be anything. Uh, it could be any kind of damage. It could be a teacher who's canceling, who wants to quit in the middle of a, a school year. It could be an accountant in the middle of tax season. It could be a musician who refuses to play by your chasana for whatever reason that he has. He's damaging your chasana. It doesn't have to be a financial damage. It's just ruining the whole quality of your chasana. All those things are called dabra of it. And a dabra of it, you can't back out. Now, I say you can't back out. What if the guy does back out? So there is recourse. Chazal gave you an, a couple of things that you could do. Um, and there, you know, a child would need to be asked. But that's what's important to understand. That there is, here's one area of halacha where Chazal said that the damage incurred uh, even if technically perhaps the Kenyan isn't sufficient to force the person to go through with it. Maybe the Dvarim and the Kenyan isn't enough to, to, to make uh, a, a viable uh, form of contract or whatever it is necessary to force the other person, but the fact alone that there are damages prevents the other person from backing out, and they can also be held liable, again, depending on the case. Let me give you another example, and this isn't with uh, a, a, a typical work contract. This would be with an order. You make a custom order. You order uh, custom furniture. You order a caterer, right? That's custom. He's making food for you. A uh, photographer. You have him that make, you know, take pictures for you. Those are all custom products. If they create that custom product, and now you're supposed to pay for it, that's a sale, right? Then that's not work. You're not paying for the work. You're paying for the product. When the person builds the furniture, you could care less how long it took or how many coats of stain you put on it. What you're paying is for the finished product. So it's a sale, essentially. But being that you ordered it, and now if you renege and you back out, there's nothing he can do with this, you are obligated to pay. That's called garmi. It's hezek. You have to pay because of a parasha of your causing damage to that person. You're liable and required to pay for it. So here, there's where you find in Hilchus Chiris Pailim primarily where Chazal take the damage incurred from reneging on a deal very seriously. When we move on to other areas of halacha, like partnerships and other forms of sales, it gets a little 
more confusing, but these concepts can be applied. So to summarize what we've talked about, we've said that when you make a deal, it'll be either one of these three kind of deals. It'll either be a employment agreement, or it'll be a sale of some sort of transaction, or it'll be a partnership agreement. To identify first what exactly it is that you're getting yourself into, and then the three questions that need to be asked when someone wants to back out, and you want to know either are you allowed to back out, or can you have any recourse with the other person? Question number one, was there a verbal commitment, a true verbal commitment, seriously made, without any significant change in situation? Simply the person just changed his mind, wants to back out, verbal commitment, at minimally you can't do anything about it, but it does prevent, it's an usher for a person to back out, and certainly the person can be rebuked for backing out. After the verbal commitments, the next question is, has a Kenyan taken place? We have three options of Kenyanim that we discussed, which is, is there a contract? Was the contract written properly? Was it written with the right language that can obligate the person to do what you want them to do? Is, uh, has money changed hands? Has there been a down payment? Is the money in escrow? That's not exactly a down payment. What kind of money changed hands? Will there be a Mishapara over here when the person backs out? Regardless of whether money changed hands, you made another Kenyan that, did, that wasn't valid, there could be possibly a mishapara, a curse, if a person backs out, or was there a satumsa, was there a, a universally agreed upon Kenyan that finalizes the deal, and all those can be used to enforce and, and to, uh, to, 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 to bring the other person to base them and make them go through with the deal. And the last question is, what are the damages that are being incurred due to backing out? Both they are relevant that it's also to back out when you're causing damages, and it's also relevant that at times a person can be held liable for those damages. Thank you very much.